The Grim Drive podcast explores mental health through the lens of professional sports and athletes. Pro athletes come forward more and more with stories about their mental health journey, what they have endured, and how they manage to push through, reflecting a mental health stigma that continues to be reduced. Pro athletes also leverage mindset to achieve peak performance, as well as representing and often driving elements of popular culture through the use of social media, technology, and personal branding. This places athletes front and center as role models for people of all ages, giving them a platform to reach many and deliver important information, including information about mental health. Welcome to the Grim Drive Podcast, where we explore mental health through the lens of professional sports and athletes. My name is Jotham Busfield. I am flying solo today. No John Cuna. He should be back in another week or two, or another episode or two, I should say. And today I'm going to be interviewing architect Matt Finn. So give a quick bio on Matt, and then I'll, I'll bring him in. Matt's, uh, Matt is passionate about how the, the built environment influences human health. He's a social entrepreneur and architect. A social entrepreneur is a person who pursues novel applications that have potential to solve community-based problems. Matt Finn founded Cognitive Design in 2016. It's a consulting and design firm that works with researchers, psychologists, social workers, and clinicians to create architecture for health, which is the Cognitive Design's slogan. He splits his time between native Atlanta, uh, where he'll be during the podcast that we're doing right now, and Molino, which is a rural town in the Florida Panhandle, where he currently resides with his wife Stephanie and their two daughters. A couple other little tidbits about Matt. Um, he was the Healthcare Design Magazine 2016 HCD 10 researcher, and at that time he was the youngest recipient, uh, the only non-PhD and the first practicing architect, which is fantastic. His college, Kennesaw State University, named him a distinguished alumni in 2018, and his work has been featured by numerous academic institutions, media outlets, and conferences, including the U.S. Green Building Council, the Academy of Neuroscience for Architecture, and the American Institute of Architects. Uh, the Academy of Neuroscience for Architecture, or ANFA, is actually where I met Matt. Matt, welcome to the Grim Drive Podcast. How are you, sir? Thanks, Jonathan. I'm doing great. Fantastic. So I know, you know, this, for people listening, you know, we're starting to do some interviews and we're looking to go outside the box with some of these interviews. I know we do the overlap of mental health and sports, but, you know, we're a big believer in the, the impact of, of total health. We're a big believer in, in um, you know, what's called embodied cognition or cognition in general. And so we see an overlap between, you know, John and I talk a lot about the impact of space on wellness overall. And it influences uh, the way we uh, set up our offices and it influences our approach to the work, where we do sessions, things like that. So while it might not seem like a natural dovetail to some people listening, I think I was really excited to bring you on because I feel like it absolutely is. And it's only going to be more so as, as um, things kind of converge towards a total health perspective moving forward, which we might get into today. So I'd like to start with just a, a background. You know, we talked about your uh, your design firm, Cognitive Design, which you started in 2016, I believe. Um, I'll let you go from there, Matt. What, how did you decide to, um, you know, create that that company? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, I was working at a, a big corporate firm called Perkins & Will, and I was getting to do a lot of really good, really good work. And about that time, I was taking my architect licensure exams and those are pretty challenging and how, how really, many are there uh when i took them there were seven i think there are more now and you know most people spend a year or two taking them while they're working professionally and sounds fun college yeah it's yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> um yeah so uh yeah i saw this 
I went to a Blue Angel show down in uh, Pensacola recently, and I saw this Marines recruiting tent, and they said, uh, pain is weakness leaving your body. And <laughs> I thought that was awesome. And I was like, yeah, that's kind of like architecture school in a totally different way. But <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. Relevant. Um, yeah, so, you know, being a, the path to becoming a licensed architect is not, you know, an easy or quick path. Yeah. And it was definitely right for me, but it's not right for everybody. And it certainly had its moments of doubt and question. And, you know, for me, the real watershed moment came when I was taking these licensure exams. I was working and studying and taking tests. And um, I actually failed the last one that I took. And there was this moment where I was like, why am I doing this? You know, it's just really beat myself up over it. And I did some professional soul searching. And for me, the answer was pretty simple. It was because architecture really matters. You know, where people spend their time has an influence on their health and their behavior. And I was working on a critical access hospital out in a rural area of Georgia at the time. And we were making all kinds of design decisions like the size and shape and, you know, direction windows face and, and inpatient bedrooms. And I wanted to know how these decisions that we were making were going to affect the health and health outcomes of the people that were healing and working there. Mm -hmm. So I started to ask these questions and I realized there weren't any answers, you know, at least none to the questions that felt very obvious that I was asking. So that's what, um, that's really the genesis of cognitive design. And from there, I started looking for a good place to answer this boil the ocean size question and designing therapeutic environments for combat veterans with PTSD was the first topic that I really engaged with on a deep, you know, academic and practical level. Mm -hmm. And that's what led to uh, presenting, you know, I presented some of that at the Academy of Neuroscience for Architecture conference. And that's where Jotham and I met. Mm -hmm. So that was a, you know, a good start. And it's fun to, to be talking with you now um, as a result of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So that first and foremost, I have to say, I can't imagine you failing anything. Um, so that, that's one thing. If anyone, Matt is like one of the smartest people I've ever met. Um, and it comes through every time we have conversations. So to see him fail anything just, just to me speaks to just how difficult architectural exams are. They're really designed to make the smartest people fail. So that's one thing. And two, I think it shows that even the most talented people have doubt, you know, have self-doubt and don't have all the answers and have to uh, look in the mirror and and sometimes question why they're doing something to to recalibrate and and kind of get back locked in uh, again, which it sounds like you did, which is fantastic. The Anfa thing, I, I couldn't believe. I remember. I think what year was the Anfa presentation that you gave? Twenty sixteen. Twenty twenty sixteen. No, twenty fourteen. I'm sorry. Twenty fourteen. Okay, so um, Anfa is is again Academy of Neuroscience for Architecture, and it's this kind of I guess group of neuroscientists and architects. I think that's the best way to describe it. Who you know, it's in. Um, La Jolla, California, which is just uh, north on the coast above San Diego. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's at this fantastic building done by Louis Kahn, which I recommend anyone if they're ever in the you know Southern California, San Diego area to go to La Jolla and check out the Salk Institute, S-A-L-K. Um, he's my favorite architect of all time, and it's one of the, the coolest buildings I've ever seen. Um, so that's where I went there because while my first career was in architecture, I had long been since realized that that wasn't gonna gonna be the path for me. Um, and yet, I was I'm still fascinated by that topic. And and when I heard neuroscience and neuroscientists and architects were sort of partnering up, I was like, oh, I'm like, I have to be there just to see what this is all about. 
And it, a lot of it was really cool stuff and kind of what I, you know, some of the ideas I expected to see people at least try to tackle. And then to see Matt's presentation on, on you know, creating an environment uh, for people, for, for veterans dealing with PTSD, to me, that was just like, it, it really took it up a notch in terms of what I didn't expect to see anything like that. I didn't expect to see people even talking about the overlap with mental health. Um, Cause again, 2014, a lot has changed since 2014 or 2015. I think now, you know, you were very far ahead of the curve uh, for even bringing that up as a topic, which, which is what my, I, my eyes were like, uh, you know, completely wide open when I saw it. I was like, I got to talk to this dude. Like, oh, what is he, what is this? This is amazing. So that's how we met. So I mean, it's great that that you did that and that it led to cognitive design. I think that drives me to my next question, which is how did you have the guts to break off from Perkins and Will? You know, uh, I would imagine a consistent, uh, stable career where where you're likely to move up the ranks to, you know, have the guts to split off and do your own business. What was that like? Yeah, that was a yeah, that was a wild ride. So I was at Perkins and Will. I was able to get some pretty good momentum going around this research and working with a psychologist on architectural topics mm-hmm. and being in a real architectural practice, making real buildings. This is not an academic pursuit per se. And it opened the doors to a lot of other opportunities. Like I got to collaborate with uh, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the CDC on childhood obesity in America, specifically looking at all the different factors, you know, being able to collaborate with them through this organization mm-hmm. called NCORE. Which okay. is a long acronym for the National Collaborative on Childhood Obesity Research. Okay, nice. Rolls off the tongue. <laughs> and uh, you know, we got to look at a you know some really interesting topics where environment and design are affecting people's health and their behaviors. And you know, I was realizing that there was this different way of practicing architecture that was super necessary. You know, I think to you know practice at the highest level attainable. And I just wasn't able to sort of re-steer that giant ship. And Perkins Will does awesome work. I'm super proud of what I did while I was there, but it was, it was, it was apparent at some point that if I wanted to practice in sort of a fundamentally different way that I needed to, you know, break off and, and kind of rebuild an architectural practice from the ground up. So that's what I ended up doing. That's amazing. So when it comes to the day-to-day business uh, of cognitive design, is it a lot of uh, contract uh, clients that you work with? Is it some grant work? Uh, is it a, a lot of pro bono? I know you do pro bono stuff too. What's the kind of the mix of how you guys usually do things? Yeah, we're, we're pretty much all contract work, um, you know, for paying clients. Uh, we do some pro bono work. Uh, most of our pro bono work is research that we publish for free. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that I'm excited about right now is we're, we're working on a, a definition of the word health. Um, you, you mentioned the holistic nature of health. That's mm-hmm. something that I'm really passionate about. And, I, you know, I, I think is a super important, um, kind of hole in, you know, society. Like we're, we're not by and large looking at health as this, you know, holistic thing. We kind of carve it up into these, all these different contrived aspects to manage the complexity of health, mm-hmm. which is a reasonable thing to do. But then we, we say your health is your physical health. So if you're, not overweight and you know you know you don't have a headache right now you're just totally fine even if your mental health may be completely suffering mm-hmm. and there are a lot of connections between all these different aspects of health that we attempt to kind of compartmentalize and say okay your, your mental health is over here and your physical health is over there you know 
we, we, we carve up each of those in all these different little segments. Um, CDC in late 2019 released this great study correlating chronic anxiety and stress, things like PTSD mm-hmm. and cardiovascular disease. And I mean, here are two aspects of health that we've, we've developed our professional silos of education and diagnostics and practice. And, you know, aside from somebody who's living that reality that these these aspects of health are definitely communicating and, and informing each other professionally, you don't see that being managed successfully. So as an architect thinking about environment affecting behavior, you know, we look at things like environmental sustainability often, you know, as an industry, which is wonderful, but if it's at the expense of, you know, somebody's social health or, mm-hmm. or you know, any number of other behavioral outcomes, that's something that needs to be considered and, and taken into account and managed. Absolutely. So I, you know, I'm fascinated by the the kind of whole health concept. And I might ask you to kind of define what you think that is in a second. I, mean, I think one of the conversations John and I have had ongoing, and you and I have started to talk about it too. And I think John even covered it in the last, uh, he just did an interview with Marco Sanchez, who's a strength coach and has his own, I think he's got two gyms. And mm. I think what, what the conversation seems to be touching on is that you know, because of the mental health stigma for a long time, you sort of had this this wide gap between physical health and mental health. And I think they've started to converge, which mm-hmm. is great. And that there's an, sort of an inevitability that eventually they're going to really meet at a certain point. And at that point, you know, what does that look like in terms of whole health? And what does it look like in terms of, of building design and, and programmatic function, right? Our, our physical health services, um, whether it's you know, primary care doctors and, and that kind of thing, or gyms and, and exercise sort of uh, settings combining with mental health in some kind of way. That's sort of mm-hmm. we, where we think it's going to go, where we hope it goes. Sure. Um, so that, that's been an ongoing discussion. How would you, how would you sort of define um, whether it's health as a general word that encompasses all that, or do you have a working definition? Yeah, so the way that I think about health is that it's the status of your health system, Mm-hmm. And these are these are all different kind of systems and interactions that are purposefully trying to manage like the subject, you know, it's either you or, you know, an organism or, or an ecosystem or mm-hmm. an economy, you know, health is not only about people, um, although that's how we, you know, most people primarily think of it that mm-hmm. way. Um, you know, so it's it's the status of the system of, of interactions and interrelated interactions between the subject and its environment. So we're continually, you know, managing inputs and whether that's, you know, cultural inputs or social inputs or physical inputs and, and maintaining a, you know, a, a, a status of good health. And, uh, you know, I, I don't, I'm a words guy, so I, I like to, <laughs> you know, laugh about things like, you know, I'm going to eat healthy today. Mm-hmm. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean like anything, right? Yeah. Health is not inherently good or bad yep. you know we, we try and say like i'm going to eat to facilitate good health mm-hmm. but then you know diet's an easy one that for people to relate to you know like oh don't eat a cupcake because it's not good for your health well you know that's probably true in most ways but celebrating your birthday with friends and you know enjoying a cupcake on that occasion very is good probably point. fantastic for your health. very good point you know, it's, it's, i heard this funny phrase a uh a, 
a happy cupcake is better than a sad salad. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I think that like that really that that captures the sentiment pretty pretty squarely. You know, so uh, it's a you know it's just a very holistic way of, of looking at it. And you know, again, I think the the big fundamental mistake that's made when thinking about health is that we carve it up into these contrived aspects that are just completely man-made you know, compartmentalization of parts of this whole thing. Mm -hmm. And we suggest and believe that they're not interrelated to each other when in reality they are. So I don't have any objection to managing complexity in this way, but we've got to put things back in context of the whole before we can really understand them. So as an architect, I feel like, you know, my profession and I are well positioned to see health in this way because we're designing places where people have their whole lived experience, right? I'm not a nutritionist. I'm not, you know, really focused on that one, you know, narrow aspect of health. I'm creating places where a bunch of different people who are all unique and individual will have their whole lived experience. So that, that positions architects, I think, to think about this in a way that has the potential to impact in a good way, you know, other more detailed, you know, knowledgeable, you know, professions that, that assess and diagnose and, and manage and manage health. That's fantastic. No, especially, you know, um, really zooming out. And I think people, when it comes to health, they, they get really stuck in the, um, the system of one, right? They're just stuck in their own head mm -hmm. or in their own body. Um, they often blame themselves or things like that. And I think zooming out to, to look at it as the interaction between, you know, the, uh, well, in this case, the person and the environment, um, or the su you said the subject and the environment, I think is a really good way to look at it um, because that's at the point where those things meet, I think, where, is where health maybe happens or starts or that kind of thing. So I think that's a fantastic way to, to help people zoom out and look at it. I also think what you brought up about, you know, not the, the, the cupcake versus salad example is just a great example of how things are never just cut and dry, right? They're never, um, mm -hmm. you know, I think people tend to be either perfectionists and or they tend to think in, in either or like binary kind of terms, just easier for the human brain to kind of uh, mm -hmm. process information in it if it's out of two choices. And so I think, you know, whether that's good versus evil, healthy versus unhealthy, I think people tend to get locked into that kind of filter. And so when they're at a party, they might look at it like, well, I'm on a diet, so I, ha I can't, I can't eat that. My diet says I can't eat it. I can't eat it. And I agree with you. They miss there's a bigger picture to what health means and mm -hmm. you have to factor in a lot of different parts, a lot of different variables, not just one. I think people struggle with that sometimes. And yet hearing you describe it, I think will make it easier for people because it's not just about sticking to one game plan, uh, one angle of health. You really have to factor in that the, the enjoyment, the camaraderie, the ability to, to reward yourself in that setting at a birthday or that kind of thing. Overall, I would say the net gain of that for your overall well-being is probably higher than just the the sheer you know uh, stick-to-itiveness of saying I cannot break from my diet and things like that. I think there's a lot of situations that happen like that with people and they, where they really struggle um, to get out of that either or sort of fixated perfectionist sort of mode. Um, so I think that's great the way you described it. So I want to talk a little bit about a couple works you did. I know you you've collaborated with or you've you've had as clients Abby Griffith who owns uh, Clarity Fitness and Mike Luttrell, mm -hmm. who owns X3 Sports and X3 Foundation. So uh, we're always fascinated with the role that, that design and architecture plays in everyday life in general, right across the board. But, you know, in the last couple decades, I think it started to meander into pro sports a little bit more um, with regard to whether it's stadiums or facilities just being 
you know, more money is being put into them. The thoughtfulness of the design is being considered from for the players, from the, for the fans, and all that kind of thing. I think it correlates with the sort of explosion of pro sports. I think mm-hmm. one of the main things about that is that pro sports is the last sort of live event uh, thing that in an on-demand world. So I think that's the main one of the main reasons why, in terms of the the spending that goes into it, um, those those areas of life have grown. But I think. The design of these spaces plays a huge role um, in parallel to that. And I want to get some more information from you because working with Clarity Fitness and X3 Sports, you know, what was it like to work on on uh, you know spaces like that or projects like that when it comes to the intersection of of uh, you know whether it's exercise and athletics and and health? It was fascinating and a lot of fun. I mean, these two these two companies are very different in terms of the clients that they serve and you know, their, their marketing messaging, you know, things of that nature that as a consumer, you would look at them and think these are very different products, but knowing the owners of both companies, they're very aligned in their, you know, in their orientation towards holistic health. And uh, I actually did um, the work for X3 and Mike first and later worked for, uh, for Abby and, and helped her create the first Clarity Fitness. Okay. And Mike ended up, you know, being a, a little bit of a mentor to Abby and, you know, they're, they're, they have a good relationship now. It's, it's a really tight community of these folks. So let me tell you about X3. I'll give you a cool example of how we think about health and design for Great. Of each of these places. So, um, both companies share that they are a, a gym where people pay a membership to come and exercise there. Um, their brands and what they offer their clients are, are, pretty class heavy <clears throat> you don't you know join x3 or clarity to go lift weights by yourself that's not really you know what what they do best mm-hmm. but they have really cool uh, really cool classes and they're both very smart about how they think about holistic health and you know the experience of the folks that come to their facilities so that as kind of the core of, of both businesses very aligned mm-hmm. um, the folks that they serve are somewhat different though so x3 focuses on um, sort of two main buckets of folks they have um you know consumers folks like me makes up about 90 percent of their membership i believe and then they have some professional athletes and their focus is on uh, fighting sports and they have professional fight teams men's and women's that are competitive on a world-class level Mm -hmm. kickboxing boxing brazilian jiu-jitsu MMA, they've got fighters in the UFC. I mean, they're the wow. real deal, yeah. real tough guys, you know. But most folks are like me, who thinks it's really fun to go take a kickboxing class from a professional coach who lived in Thailand and is a real <laughs> badass. Yep. But I have no interest in actually sparring with anybody. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really exciting. It's exhilarating to go, you know, play on a heavy bag and, you know, get really good workout. And, you know, it's like a game. It's yeah. fun. So, uh, so they recognize that, you know, that relationship, like that ability for somebody like me, who's an architect, I'm sitting behind a desk or on a job construction site most of the time, for me to be socially and like in our activity aligned with people from all different walks of life, all different backgrounds that are all there to exercise in this way and have a chance to socialize with a, you know, professional fighter mm-hmm. is a really cool thing. And that's what makes the experience of going there in part largely 
novel and exciting, you know? So they recognize, you know, this is one of the things about their business that, that really makes it tick. So what we do is we look at that and we say, okay, how does environment affect behavior? And we're looking at things like social interactions. We're looking at motivation for exercising. You know, I'll just stick to those two for this, for this one example. So we look at the way exercising, social interactions and motivation change compared to, you know, being in other environments, mm -hmm. right? So if you're, you know, motivation while sitting at a desk and doing work on a computer is different than motivation while you're exercising with a group. And social interactions are different when you're, you know, in a resting body state versus exerting, you know. So what we found was that there's this correlation between uh, exertion and willingness to cooperate with others, socialize, you know, get along. Mm -hmm. So we found that if you, if you map out the activities that somebody, you know, takes part in while they come there, they park, they walk in, they check in, they drop off the things in the lockers, they go to the exercise area, they warm up, they go through a class, wipe down everything, head back to the lockers and leave, that there's this period of time after class ends when they're like totally spent, <laughs> at least I am. Mm -hmm. And before they enter the lockers, when people are naturally most primed and willing to socialize with other people. So when we look at architectural design, we think, okay, here's this, here's this period of time. And if you just mapped it out over the course of being there, it's an absolute sliver, right? When you think about going to, to the gym or exercising anywhere, that period of time when you're done exercising before you leave, that's just something that you try and blow through in most cases. Mm -hmm. But we recognize that like, that is the period of time when people are most likely to make new friends, to, you know, strengthen existing relationships, to strike up a conversation with somebody they mm -hmm. may not interact with at other parts of their day. And all we did was, you know, in a, in a typical architectural design process, what you would do is you would kind of map out these places people go, and then you would just try and arrange the rooms so that people can kind of flow through the facility in a very efficient path. Um, this is very appropriate if you're looking at like nursing in a hospital and you're trying to reduce the amount of walking you know, for mm -hmm. that a nurse would do throughout the course of the day, but this is a gym. It's not, that's not a metric that matters. Yep. So we're looking at socialization as a metric that matters. So what we did was we took the place where people exercise and the place where you go right before you leave the lockers and we just moved them far apart from each other. And all we did was we took that sliver of time and just elongated it. So we this was in a, a two-story building. We put all the exercise areas downstairs and we put the lockers upstairs. And what that meant was, you know, you go and take a 45-minute a, a kickboxing class, wipe down your bag, and then you walk, you know, across the exercise floor and up a flight of stairs, up shoulder to shoulder with somebody who you just went through. Mm -hmm. In non-scientific terms, it is impossible to not acknowledge that they're there. Yeah. You know? And when you form these you know, these, these friendships with people, you're accountable to them to come back. It improves adherence to an exercise regimen. It has a lot of benefits. You know, you're going to, you know, people feel on average more motivated mm -hmm. to, to come to class and, and try harder while they're there. All of these things benefit everybody, you know, so we're not taking away any kind of freedom of choice. We're not trying to like 
collect and distribute people's phone numbers or home addresses or anything weird like and that. You're kind of getting them out of their own way by yeah. arranging uh, or, uh, you know, creating a space that exactly. prevents their own sort of, uh, you know, uh, blind spots from, from getting in their own way, basically, right? That's exactly yeah. right. And, and the reason that, like, when you enter the lockers is significant is because, you know, the, the dynamics of a conversation either completely end if you're going into separate lockers or they change because some people don't want to be social while they're changing clothes, mm -hmm. myself included. So that's our generation. Know, I, I, the generation yeah. above us is like oh, yeah. just wearing nothing, talking like all day, like it's no big yeah. deal. I'd let go hang out is, in the sauna. Exactly. <laughs> not our generation or no, beneath you. it. Yeah, exactly. I'll start with that. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, this is an example where we're just looking at the way people work. You know, it's not architecturally stylistic. It's not, you know, reducing freedom of choice or anything like that. We're just acknowledging that people are social and we're naturally more likely to be social following physical exertion. So we're going to, we're going to try and maximize the time that people have, you know, the opportunities for people to do that. And that's it. That is fantastic. Yeah, I think the the physical exertion as a primer, you know, primer for social connection, primer for learning even, um, I think is is really so huge for people. And the fact that you design the space to really tailor to that and account for maybe some some uh, repetitive tendencies. I think people get into habits or associations with past gyms that they've been in in terms of like, like you said, blowing right through that post-workout stage, right right to the to the locker to grab their stuff and go or to shower and change and things like that is amazing. And also the separation of those two things, um, you know, where the gym at is versus where the locker room is at also makes me think of, of, uh, the building where Anfa is at, you know, where that, that, um, that Louis Kahn building where I think, he, mm -hmm. I want to say he was the first person to really take laboratory. So the Salk Institute was a, um, you know, basically a scientific laboratory building, right? There's, there's labs mm -hmm. on the, the ground and maybe subground level. And he took those, kept them down there and really separated and elevated the, the offices of the scientists um, to have them be distinctly separate spaces that, you know, the offices are, are elevated, separate, and also look out onto the horizon line in the ocean to really uh, stimulate creativity. And it sounds like uh, you're doing like a, a really cool version of this too, where it's like you're, you're looking how to set, looking at how to separate those spaces architecturally for the benefit of the person using the building. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at health, holistically and acknowledging the way that all these things are interrelated. I mean, it, you know, it's pretty apparent, I think, from that example that we're looking at physical health as one in, you know, heavily influenced, maybe not a, directly a byproduct, but like it's very tightly related to your, your social environment. So, you know, I can't make the weights heavier or mm -hmm. people punch the bag harder, but we can definitely create an environment that facilitates motivation and adherence to, you know, going to the gym on a regular basis. So well, and this, this also leverage that we pull. Totally. And you, you mentioned the, the cupcake salad example earlier. I think this applies to that too, because when people think health, right, they're mo in a literal sense, they're probably thinking exercise. But uh -huh. if you zoom out from that cupcake salad perspective, it's really about what, what does social connection do for your overall health? Because it's huge. Sure. I mean, there's been research that ties that to life expectancy and how long you live. I think in the U.S. in particular, loneliness has never been more of a problem than it is now, probably because we're more of an individualist culture than a collectivist culture. So it, it, you're clearly tapping into that in such a huge way, and it shows how design can, can impact health, and not just in a literal sense, but in a really zooming out and seeing the bigger picture. Yeah, totally. We, um, we wrote a uh, white paper 
we started it in 2018 and released it in January of 2020 on social isolation in the built environment. And then a couple months after January 2020, social isolation became relevant to yep. way more people, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And uh, we revisited, we identified like risk factors, you know, environmental risk factors for that. And then recently we've revisited the topic looking at what risk factors changed during 2020 that statistics became available for. And it is definitely an unfortunate situation and something that just is not unmanageable. We just got to be aware of it and do what we can and, and acknowledge it as important. And I think that's the, you know, that's what's, that's what's missing from a lot of people's approach to health is that they're, they're defining it far too narrowly and, and wind up overlooking things that are really important and maybe have less acute outcomes, but definitely have profound long-term, you know, influence. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's fantastic. So we talked about X3 sports. So how does, so Clarity Fitness came second. How would you compare those or what stands out about Clarity Fitness? Yeah. So Clarity was a lot of fun. Um, one thing I should, should mention is that X3 did not get built, mm -hmm. unfortunately. So that's, that was a, you know, a little fear for, <laughs> I'm sure that happens often, right? Projects. Yeah, it does. Yeah. yeah. It, as an architect, I think, I don't know, somewhere between a third and a half of projects get built mm -hmm. and the rest don't. So that's a normal, normal thing that we're yep. used to as architects, but it's still very disappointing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they, they have other gyms and, and they're operating, you know, and like most gyms are dealing with the COVID precautions mm -hmm. and all that. Mm -hmm. So hope they're, uh, I hope they get to stick around because they do a lot of good, yeah, a lot of good things. Absolutely. So Clarity was a new gym, um, new brand. This uh, young woman, Abby Griffith, uh, she's a, a personal trainer. She has an uh, industrial engineering background and uh, she is a uh, eating disorder recovery and she's a part of the body positive movement. So body positivity is all about exercising as a form of self-care. Mm -hmm. Sort of meeting yourself where you are, exercising because you love yourself, not because I don't like the way that this part of my body looks, or I'm trying to impress or please any other person. Love or, it. You know, group of people. Yep. It's really holistic health. Yeah. You know, focused. I, I think it's just absolutely fantastic. And what we were looking at there was how do we make a, a body positive gym with that as the primary focus? You know, that's a very holistic approach to exercise. Movement is definitely a part of holistic health. So how do we create a place where the focus is not on having the physique of a model or, you know, any of, any of those other, you know, unsustainable, unhealthy motives mm -hmm. and create a place where exercise is, is fun. And, and we're looking out for people who may be coming to this gym because they're struggling with some of those issues. So. When we look at a, you know, a place like a, a gym, for example, we do design a lot of other places, but, you know, these are the couple we're going to talk about today. Mm -hmm. um, there's a certain amount of things that you do at a gym that are universal, right? People are lifting weights, they're doing cardiovascular exercises on, you know, bikes or ellipticals or stair climbers. There's some space for group exercise classes like yoga or, you know, whatever they're doing. And... You know, these are reasonably uh, predictable spaces as far as what is needed to do the actual activity, right? Mm -hmm. So there's not a whole lot um, 
of thinking that's required to sort of find a place for somebody to do, you know, a, a, a bench press. Mm -hmm. But when you think about um, when you think about the way environment affects behavior, right? Providing the space for that is totally different than providing a space that facilitates good health in the particular way that we're looking at it for this project, body positivity. So gyms, you know, a universal feature of gyms, just as one example, is mirrors, right? And if we're, if we're tailoring this space to body positivity and serving people that may be struggling with how they perceive their, themselves or, you know, overly critical thinking about, you know, how they look or feel at A, you know, seeing your own reflection can certainly instigate thoughts that may not be beneficial for somebody. And by no means is a is a gym going to like cause or resolve any issues like that. You know, they, you, you got to work with with a psychotherapist or a counselor mm -hmm. who, can, who can help you from that angle as well. Yep. But when we look at when we look at gyms, like we see these giant wall to wall mirrors, we thought, okay. You know, we're looking at perception of self. The mirrors feel like an obvious thing for us to look into. You know, let's not just do the default. You know, you need some clear floor space to do some, you know, bicep curls. Mm -hmm. But what what happens outside of that physical space? And we started looking in the mirrors. And what we found was that even though mirrors are a universal feature of most exercise gyms, the way people respond to mirrors is far from universal. So what we found was that on average, you know, and this is according to the literature that we found, uh, males typically know how to use mirrors better because they tend to exercise, you know, participate in exercise activities like weightlifting that they learn how to use a mirror mm -hmm. so they can, you know, know what to look for in their reflection. So on average, men benefit more than women. Um, we found that if you're struggling with a, uh, body positivity issues, a lot of times seeing your reflection is not helpful. Um, it can instigate yeah. you know, critical thinking about yourself. For sure. We found that if you don't know how to use a mirror, which is something you can easily learn, but if you don't know how to use it, a lot of times it can actually have a negative outcome, right? Think you're doing bicep curls and you want to look at your shoulder from the back or something. It can really cause you to like compromise your form yep. and pay less attention to your body mm -hmm. and, you know, the sensations of lifting weights and, and allowing, you know, your own movements and feelings and responses yeah. participating to like guide your actions and, and use that as a form of learning. So, you know, in that regard, we recognize that mirrors are not fantastic in every situation and they are fantastic in some situations, right? If you're knowledgeable and a high-performing athlete, having mirrors and being able to use them as a tool for achieving the highest levels of physical performance is really beneficial. Mm -hmm. So we've got this situation where we don't want mirrors and we want mirrors. So what do we do? So our approach in this gym was to first reduce where we have mirrors. So instead of having you know a big room with wall-to-wall, floor-to-ceiling mirrors, for you know, weightlifting and cardio and all this kind of stuff, we only put mirrors where exercise would take place, where it was beneficial to use mirrors if you were one of those folks that could use it, mm -hmm. right? So just at the weightlifting areas, not in front of the treadmills or you know electrical. Mm -hmm. And we put those, you know, that equipment with beautiful views of nature. And instead of using uh, 
yeah, and and we we kind of contain them to these like little exercise stations. So okay. we naturally space them out so that you know it's not a wall to wall mirror. So you cannot be standing in front of the mirror if you choose. You know, there's kind of enough space to be between the mirrors or in front of one. So that individual and choice is built in. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. So in addition to that approach of like reducing mirrors, we use them in a very decorative way so that it's not the mirror at the gym, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's an architectural material that we've used. So it, it fades into the background a little bit. Okay. And we didn't use bright silver mirrors. We used gray glass mirrors. So these are... Basically, think about looking at your reflection in a mirror versus in a mirror when you're wearing sunglasses. Okay. Or if you were to put like window tint, like you put on your car, put that on the mirror. So it gives you, you know, enough to see what you need to see, but it's not bombarding you with every like hyper detail. Yes. Right. And yeah, it's it's fully functional for observing your form if you know what to look for and you're paying attention to that. But otherwise, it doesn't make you feel like you're standing in the middle of a room if you're standing at the edge of it. It doesn't, you know, prompt a lot of those you know, self-conscious thoughts, it, it, it's far less detracting from the sensations, you know, distracting from the sensations of the movements that you're doing. Mm -hmm. And right now we're doing a, a you know, we're getting feedback from the people that use the gym and, you know, they're, they like this feature, you know, a lot of folks that come to this gym come there in part because of the design and because of the culture of holistic health and the way that they, you know, talk about and approach and encourage you know, good motives. And they, you know, people have said like, I hate mirrors in the gym. I hate these less. You know. <laughs> well, I think the, the choice and the comfort that comes from that, and I'm sure from other features, you know, that, that makes a person feel like they want to come back, right? It creates a positive association. It, it creates um, the ability to feel either feel good about yourself or not being bombarded by reasons to feel bad, uh, which I think mm -hmm. is the same kind of thing. And, That's and right. that leads to a person or multiple people wanting to come back, which I think uh, is not only good for the business, it's good for the people, and it, and it builds community as well. So this is this is really fascinating, Matt. Uh, those two projects in particular, I mean, I'm sure we're going to have to have a part two because I want to talk about some of these other projects you've done um, as well as a few other topics. But this has been fascinating for today. Um, we are going to wrap up at this point, and we'll continue on to maybe uh, schedule a, a part two. Are you on board for that? What do you think? I'm down. And uh, I'll send you a link. You can put it in the description of this. And uh, the Clarity Fitness was built. So we've got photos of that. You know, folks can, can go on there and check out what these gray glass mirrors look like and read about some of the other things that we did. So they can help. Fantastic. I'm going to definitely put links to everything we talked about in the show notes so that everyone can access that information. Um, as always, we want to remind people just to, to subscribe on YouTube to the Grim Drive Podcast if you want to check out some of our past episodes or listen to some future ones. I want to thank everyone for listening to the Grim Drive Podcast for this interview with Matt Finn, uh, architect. Thanks, Matt. Awesome. Thanks, Jonathan.